Hello there, beautiful people. How's everybody doing today? Welcome to Shine Brighter with Liz, a podcast on personal growth and lifestyle development. I am so grateful that you personally are listening. Yes, you, the person that has your headphones on, I'm speaking directly to you. I want to thank you for clicking my podcast for whatever reason that drew you to this podcast. No, there is a reason that you are listening to today's episode. I really hope that I can shine some light into your life and this is going to be a really exciting episode. Today's guest is so unique, an extremely busy person, an extremely driven person who has known his purpose since he was young and has really gone for it with full force. I'm so humbled to be able to sit down and speak with him. I mean, he's had people like Meryl Streep in his projects like, and I got to have him in my project. So yes, I feel extremely humbled. It's truly a great episode, so I cannot wait to introduce today's guest. Today's guest is Ilan Arboleda. Ilan is the producer and co-founder of Creative Chaos VMG. Ilan is a Miami native, and it makes sense that that's where I met him, in Miami, at the Miami Film Festival's opening night screening of This Changes Everything, an incredible film that I just had to go see, and I'm so glad that I did. It's an investigation of systematic gender discrimination in Hollywood. It includes interviews with Meryl Streep, Shonda Rhimes, Kate Blanchett, Reese Witherspoon, Natalie Portman, and many, many more. This is an incredible documentary, guys, that if you had the chance, go watch it. If you're an actor, you may have heard of the documentary Casting By. If you haven't, you have to go watch it. It's on HBO and on Netflix. Ilan was also the producer of Casting By. Now, Casting By is a documentary that focuses on the role of casting directors in the movie-making process. It has interviews with Martin Scorsese, Woody Allen, Robert Duvall, Glenn Close, Al Pacino, and they sit back and look at how casting directors have shaped the direction of Hollywood over the last 50 years, including their careers, and how these casting directors really discovered these actors. Not only has he worked on This Changes Everything, Casting Goodbye, but he also has a great film called Thank You For Your Service, available on Hulu and Amazon, Bleed Out, available on HBO, and many, many, many more. His films have appeared in over 50 film festivals, including Cannes, Sundance, Berlin, Toronto, Miami, New York, and has been released in over 60 countries around the world. So without further ado, guys, let's dive into this incredible episode. We are recording. Okay, so first off, thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy life. I know you just had a baby um, to sit down with me and, and, and chat. I'm really excited to um, just talk about you and, and, and all of this amazing work that you've done. Cool. Well, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So um, for the audience that's listening to you and doesn't know you, let's start from the beginning. Tell me who you are, um, a little bit about yourself. What were you like as a kid? What did you want to be when you grew up? And really what's been your journey from childhood to kind of where you are right now? Um, well, I, my name is Ilan Arboleda. I was born in Miami. Um, grew up um, my whole life in Miami until I was 17. Um, what did I want to be when I grew up? I grew up. Um, all I wanted to be when I was a kid was president of the United States. <laughs> that was my entire focus. And my entire focus was getting to Washington and being president. I was, it was wow. a very singular goal as a kid. And I left high school in 11th grade and I went to go be a page in the Senate and spend a year 
in Washington, D.C. Uh, in the Senate, um, which was a transformative experience for me. And uh, it was um, it, it just sort of confirmed everything I wanted to be and everything I wanted to do. Um, and then I went to Georgetown so I could stay in Washington. And then at Georgetown, um, I went immediately and got internships and worked on the Capitol Hill and the Senate and the House side. And then I worked in the White House for President Clinton. Um, and so I was very singularly focused. Um, at the same time, I had some very good friends of mine from Miami who went to Columbia University. And they we all came back freshman year and talking about what we were going to major in. And they were all majoring in film. And I'm like, you can major in film? How is that possible? What do you, what do you mean you majoring in film? Georgetown had nothing like that there. And um, but that started um, my wheels turning very slowly. And then um, just to show my age, my sophomore year in college was 1994. And that was the year of the Republican Revolution when Newt Gingrich came in and swept, um, swept the House and Senate. And it was a profound period of disillusionment for me. And I actually ended up leaving school for a year, traveled around the world. And when I came back, um, I decided it wasn't politics I wanted to be involved in, it was film. And that wow. the things that I cared about in politics were was social justice and people and activism. Um, and that when you compromise yourself in film, um, you just affect yourself. When you compromise yourself in politics, uh, you can affect the lives of a lot of people. Um, and I thought perhaps I can have a greater impact in film. So I did an about face. I stayed at Georgetown and um, I stayed focused on politics. But when I graduated, instead of um, like my friends, either going to Capitol Hill or going to Wall Street, I hopped in a car and drove to Los Angeles. Yeah. And so, uh, and that's how I got into the movie business. Yeah. And so let's talk about, first off, amazing. I mean, you, you grew up with this obvious fire and, and clear direction. Um, that a lot of people your age probably would not even consider that. Why do you feel like you wanted to be president? Was What was that? I wanted to have the maximum amount of impact. I was this little precocious kid in school. I was okay. the I was this singular-minded policy walk. I could talk policy when I was 12 years old. It was a little weird, I guess. <laughs> um, but that's how I ended up going to Washington when I was in high school. I um, I would crash, as a kid, I would crash political events. I crashed the 1988 Democratic Convention. I crashed a, an event for Michael Dukakis when I was 12 <laughs> and um, thought that's what I was going to be. And I would go to these um, events, um, fundraisers for senators and congressmen in people's homes in Miami and um, do my best to impress them as this little 12-year-old kid with a double-breasted suit on. Uh, <laughs> that is so cute. It, it was cute at the time. I don't know if it got cute as I got older, but it was definitely cute at 12 years old. And I left an impression. And that's how I get, uh, got to go to Washington. I ended up working for George Mitchell, the Senate Majority Leader. Um, I was sort of my hero at the time. Um, wow. That was 1992. Right. I went to Washington. Amazing. So amazing. And so, so now you end up in Los Angeles, and I saw you – um, we're doing some production assisting. And so let's talk about your body of work and kind of where it started. Like what was your journey getting to LA and, and how did this sure, all, I, all start? Yeah. Well, I mean, I spent all this time trying to build relationships in Washington, but when I hopped in a car and moved to LA, I knew no one there. Yeah. Um, and so it was just, it was all about, uh, the hustle. It's all about how quickly you can make an impression, uh, who you make an impression with. And one thing I learned from years of being a little child, um, glad handing is that the ability to build relationships was everything. Right. And um, so I moved to LA and I very quickly um, got about five different jobs. I was a window washer. I was a dog walker. I sold computer printer ribbons on the phone. Um, I, I did all these different things. And then I got an internship 
for a producer named Alex Rose, um, who was most famous for making the film Norma Ray in the 70s. Mm. With, um, that won a few Oscars. Um, and she had become Gary Marshall's uh, main producer. And I started working for her as an intern. And um, very quickly, I tried my best to make an impression. And they hired me as an assistant and as a story developer person. And then they greenlit a movie uh, called The Other Sister at Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, the Other Sisters with Diane Keaton and right. uh, Juliette Lewis. And um, nice. that was my film school. I, I didn't do any film school. I studied politics in school. So my film school was that movie. I, everything from the development of the script all the way to the delivery and release of the film, I was involved every single step of the way. And that was, I basically got paid to go to film school and I learned an incredible amount there. That's amazing. And then I did the same thing on the movie Runaway Bride with Julia Roberts here. Uh, and that was the second film I worked on. Um, and after that film, I spent, um, I realized that while I enjoyed the Hollywood, um, Hollywood filmmaking process, and I worked on these very big films with these very big families, Gary Marshall at the time and for years afterwards was one of the most successful directors in Hollywood. So he had these big families of productions that he would do and people would move from movie to movie together year after year. And I was sort of in that family, which was a really nice experience, but it wasn't the type of filmmaking I was passionate about. Right. And um, at the time happening, this was the late 90s, and at the time in New York City, um, there was this exploding independent film scene, making the kind of films that I thought were exciting and interesting and different and compelling. And, and I said, that is the scene, that those are the types of films that I care about. Uh, you know, uh, at, a, I went, at Georgetown, which was such an international school, my, my main focus with the limited film classes I could take were all world cinema, right. um, watching films from around the world. So I cared about independent film and foreign language film. Um, so I hopped in another car and moved to New York after a couple of years in Los Angeles. And I moved to New York in 99 and got involved in the independent film scene there. And I, I quickly made a few horrible films. Uh, <laughs> at 24 years old, I put out my hat and said, I'm a producer and I raised money. This was the, the dot-com era 1.0. And um, there was some liquidity in the marketplace and we raised some money and we made films with digital, um, the first version of digital cinema when film was still alive and well. And uh, the, none of those movies went anywhere. <laughs> and I had a job. Um, so I got a job in the finance company that financed and, paid and, and floated money for films. And I learned a little bit about the financing element of film. And after two years of that, I decided that um, I'm going to go out on my own again. And in 2002, I set up a company called Synapse, which I ran for the next uh, 10 years. Um, essentially, Synapse was a company that was going to finance, um, package, um, and develop funds for films. Um, and the first two years, I had no idea what I was doing. I just said, I'm a film financer, not knowing really what that even meant. And I used the, the money I had made at this job to um, sort of front uh, my little company. And I right. traveled around the world learning film finance. Uh, I went wow. to Germany. I spent a lot of time in Germany um, with the film funds there. I spent a lot of time in England with the sale leaseback funding process uh, and really learned my way around the European process of making films That's and international great. co-productions and how you package films through international co-production. Um, and um, that sort of culminated uh, once I met some friends. I'm Colombian uh, mm-hmm. by nationality, by, by background, and uh, I met some friends um, who were working on this project called Maria Full of Grace. Um, which was mm. in 2004 that I got involved with, um, which was very successful. And after that film came out, um, we decided that we could do something in Colombia, that things had changed, that the, the era of danger um, and fear about Colombia was really shifting, the wind had shifted. And um, 
we set out to do something different. And I had used my experience raising money in Europe to try and apply it um, in Colombia. And we created uh, the first film fund in South America called Dinamo Capital. Um, and through that fund uh, and production, subsequent production company, we created a number of uh, Colombian films uh, that did well in, in the marketplace and we we're really proud of them and really the types of films that I wanted to be making. Um, and then I, um, but I decided ultimately that my future wasn't in Colombia. It really was, um, I had to go back to Los Angeles. Mm. Uh, so I moved back to LA and left that company uh, that we had founded. And today they're probably the largest company in South America and they produce everything from Narcos to a million. Wow. It's a fantastic company. Um, but I'm no longer part of that. Um, um, but I continued financing, packaging, putting together films and had did films in China and the Middle East and, um, and in Europe as well. And um, I was packaging independent films in the U.S. as well. Um, and then the stock market collapsed and the entire, mm-hmm. entire world went into a recession. And I realized that I thought I was good at raising money for films. And I realized I wasn't so good. I was only as good as the money in the marketplace. Right. And which was a really humbling, but really, um, really um, great experience because ultimately I had to get a job for the first time in a decade. And I, um, I went to work at a reality television company, which I, which um, I didn't think I would like, and I didn't care for the content and all at all. Um, the content really wasn't my cup of tea. Uh, however, learning to manage six, seven shows at once uh, at this reality company, I was the CEO of the company, uh, was a great experience that I was able to take forward. And um, in 2010, I started a new company, the company I have today called Creative Chaos, um, right. a business partner named Tom Donahue, uh, and another business partner named Steve Edwards. Um, and Tom and I had looked for projects for years to work on together. I was trying to get back to rolling up my sleeves and doing really hands-on producing rather than financing. And he was an editor and producer trying to get into directing. And I said, well, you find some project, we'll find some projects together that you can direct and I can roll up my sleeves and hands on produce. And that really ended up becoming the company creative chaos. Um, and really was an exercise in me rolling up my sleeves and taking all the experience I had from financing and line producing and sales and packaging, putting that all to use. Um, and basically what creative chaos is, is a soup to nuts company. I do everything from raise all the money to develop all the projects, to produce everything in-house. We do all the post-production in-house. We deliver it and we sell the films and we've even on occasion done our own distribution. Um, And we've done about a dozen films so far. Um, Most of them have been directed by Tom. Yeah. Uh, And our very first one, So, and when we set up the company, it wasn't designed to be a documentary company, which is sort of what it is today. Yeah, I see. Uh, It was designed just to be a a feature film company that did all sorts of feature films, whether it's documentary or narrative. Um, But our first film, um, we we worked on a documentary. It was called Casting By. And that movie was a huge success for us. HBO bought it in a bidding war. Um, It did terrific on HBO. It did terrific um, on Netflix. Netflix at the time was just really getting started. Um, We got a couple Emmy nominations and won the National Board of Review. Um, and it really changed some things in Hollywood. Um, so talk to talk a little bit about that film. Like, what inspired you to do that? This was your first documentary. That was our first documentary, um, and that film, um, yeah, it was it was interesting. We had been Tom and I had been working on a feature film that we were trying to get off the ground, and we met and we met with our casting director, and she said, mm-hmm. "Have you ever heard of this woman named Marion Doherty? Uh, she's a casting director. Maybe be interesting to make a movie about her." Uh, and um, we're like, well, we don't know who Marion Doherty is. 
And we looked her up and we turned out she had really discovered everybody. Um, yeah. In the 1950s and 60s and 70s, she discovered everyone. She was the center, the center point for films in New York City. And the New York look and all the great films of the 70s really came out of her, um, her company. Uh, as a casting director. And she really established the casting making profession, the casting profession. Um, and so we went on this journey. We started the film actually before we started Creative Chaos in 2008. We shot our first interviews with Marion and a few other people and the film just sort of lay dormant. So when we started the company, we said, this is the thing we should pick up and really work on. Right. Um, and in about a year, we did 200 interviews with every um, acting legend you can think of, Pacino and De Niro and Clint Eastwood and Robert Duvall and Jeff Bridges and John Travolta, Scorsese, uh, and, you know, everyone's in the film because everyone came out to support these pe this woman uh, who had meant so much to them. And we so ended up getting these people to, sorry to interrupt you. So getting these people to um, hop on your project, it was really them doing it out of support for her. How was that like getting Al Pacino, getting De Niro, like to be like, hey, can you be a part of this project? We're it was on? impossible. Uh, it took yeah. three years to get some of them. Uh, Clint Eastwood took three years to get them. Um, and Bette Midler took three years. And we got Mel Gibson in the height of his, all the craziness that was around Mel Gibson, but he was important to the film because um, Marion had meant so much to him in his career. Marion really helped his career so much. Wow. Um, it, it was a really difficult process. My producing partner in that film, Kate Lacey, she was the wonder kind behind that. She got about 95% of all those actors. She was a casting director and a Disney, uh, an executive at Disney for years. So she had the relationships, but more importantly, she had the tenacity um, to get those people. She busted her butt and took a, an enormous amount of time to get everybody. We, we eventually got everybody we wanted. Uh, wow. it was, and it's probably the greatest collection of acting legends ever assembled in one film. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, also in this changes everything, you guys were able to get a lot of people. So we'll move into that after. Um, so that's amazing. So you guys get uh, nominated for an Emmy. And then what is the process after that? So, you know, that film, well, a couple things happened with that film. The first thing was not only was it a success sort of in the zeitgeist in Hollywood, people, everyone watched the film and it was on everyone's lips and it did really well on HBO. It was one of the bigger documentaries of the year on HBO, but it also created some change. Three days before the movie came out on HBO, the Motion Picture Academy, you know, the Oscars, they decided to create a branch for casting directors because the movie is about the unsung story of the casting director and the importance of a casting director in the filmmaking process. The opening line of the movie is Martin Scorsese's, he says 95% of all movie making is casting. Um, so the movie really sets out to prove that. And we set up the movie by saying the, the only opening, ti opening title credit in a movie that doesn't have an Oscar category is the casting director. And really, why is that? And the movie is an examination into the creation of the profession and why um, the casting profession doesn't get its due. Right. So three days before the, um, the movie was released on, on HBO, um, the Academy started a branch for casting directors. Wow which really, and three casting directors joined the Board of Governors, which was a profound change. Um, and then um, the other counterpart to Marion in the film is Lynn Stallmaster, sort of the West Coast counterpart. And Lynn, he was sort of the only casting celebrity in a sense. Um, and um, two years after the movie came out, um, the Academy gave Lynn an Academy Award. Uh, the first time ever that a casting director has gotten an Academy Award. Uh, we were there with Lynn when he received it. It was incredible. This is the Oscar? This is the Oscar, exactly. Oh, I think game. I saw that on your Instagram. So, so to beautiful. this day, he's the only um, casting director to get an Oscar. Uh, and it's because of the film. And because of wow. these changes, because of these changes that we were able to happen by accident, um, 
in Hollywood, we thought, well, wow, the movie, movies really do have a power to inspire and to change and be a catalyst for something. Right. Um, and then the next film, someone approached me, uh, approached Tom and myself and said, um, you know, I'd love to make a movie with you. What can we work on together? And he came across this article in the New York Times in April 2012 called Veterans Death and Nation's Shame mm. about um, the suicide epidemic in, um, in the military. And he said, would you be interested in this? And we said, you know, we, we would. Is, you know, we're so disconnected. Um, through these wars on the, the on the veteran experience, how can we get involved? How how do we get reconnected to the process? I mean, about it, and we went on this journey. He gave us enough money, um, this investor, to go on the journey for a year, and it was nine months into the movie that we realized what our movie was even about. We came across a psychologist in Seattle who really had the answers. Um, the notion of a behavioral health corps in the military that, from the moment someone enlists um, in the military, that their mental health is as important as their physical well-being, and that mm -hmm. there needs to be a core that is specifically accountable to the mental health of our soldiers, which to this day there is none. Um, and um, that became our main focus of the film, and that became our main mm -hmm. focus after the film. And um, we took that film on this amazing road, um, three years traveling around the country with this film, and actually into other countries as well. And with that film, we were finally able last year Actually, what am I talking about last year? This year, March of this year, Congressman Seth Moulton briefly ran for president this year. He introduced legislation based on our film into this year's National Defense Appropriations Act. Um, and that was the first step towards getting Behavioral Health Corps to happen. And it really shows the power of filmmaking, that we could right. take this film out there. And the idea of Behavioral Health Corps uh, went from an idea that nobody had ever heard of to an idea um, that people thought should be done. Uh, and that's the power of filmmaking. We accepted this idea and over the course of showing this film to hundreds of thousands of people, um, they slowly became about face, both in Washington, um, in the Pentagon, uh, and now we're very hopeful that we can finally get a core happening in the next few years. And it's that's amazing. And it's so amazing because like just when you talk about you as a kid and what you wanted to do, and it's like sometimes your life is already telling you what you're gonna do in this world. And it's beautiful that you're like, oh, I'm going to be a president or you had this political, you know, journey. And then now, you know, in your career, it's really kind of helped you and in, in all of that stuff that you did as a kid and building those relationships. And mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's incredible. It's, it's really inspiring to hear you speak and, and the fact that you've been able to take so much action and, and just, um, I don't know, you're really serving the world. And I think that's a beautiful thing because as an actress, so much and I've heard so many people say this like I want to be an actor but I feel like it's such a selfish thing and I think you know it's important to figure out the kind of work that you can serve in because you're a filmmaker but you're ultimately doing service to the world you know and I think it's such a beautiful thing to be able to serve the world like that and to um, bring attention and bring awareness and ultimately create change I think that's like, I really applaud you for all of that. So um, let's keep talking about this body of work. So kind of what happens after, um, after that? Sure. Well, that really unleashed um, an ability to make a lot of films. And we were able to raise a lot of money for movies. And uh, we started doing a bunch of different kinds of films, both um, fun movies. Um, I shouldn't say fun, but I should say um, Hollywood-centric films. Right. Because we love Hollywood. And I'm a profound... Um, uh, um, I just I just digest everything having to do with Hollywood history. And all our films have a lot of elements of Hollywood history. Cassie Bay has some Hollywood history in it. This Changes Everything yeah. has a lot of Hollywood history in it. Um, you, know, you talked about acting. 
we spent four months in Russia uh, working on a film about Stanislavski. Um, I in the saw that. Um, so, you know, we've done all these different things um, on that side, but also our main focus has been um, politics. And, and I shouldn't say politics. Our, our main focus should be, is about how do you create change and how do you create long-tail social activism. Uh, and for me, that's political. Uh, and it's not partisan. It's not Republican or Democrat. We pride ourselves on not making partisan films. We try to make films that... Um, bring people together that both sides come together. Thank you for your service. There's no Republican or Democrat agenda It really is about here is a practical real-world solution that everyone can get behind uh, It's very central and it's just kind yeah. of saying like Here's are the facts. This is the facts. Here are the facts. Here's the history linking mm -hmm. us to the history This is the systemic dive we're gonna and the journey I'm gonna take you on and by the time we're done with this journey of filmmaking process we're gonna present you stories and connected to these stories are facts and history um, that um, almost make our solutions a fait complete, and the ends of our films are almost always calls to action as a result. Mm. Um, so we made a film that came out on HBO last year called Bleed Out. Um, right. That was one of the first ones that Tom didn't direct, but Tom and I produced, and that was about the medical profession and um, medical error. Medical error is the third leading cause of death in America, right. and so we follow this one, this poor woman's journey through um, this accident that happened in the operating room. Uh, through a nine-year battle to get justice and to find out actually what happened to her. Uh, the surgery goes wrong and she ends up in a coma uh, in a vegetative state. And when she recovers, she has the mental faculties of an eight-year-old um, mm -hmm. and her son, who is the director of the film, spent eight years trying to get justice. And it's a powerful film. And, you know, we were worried about it. We took on the largest healthcare giant in the Midwest and we were very worried about um, what the response was going to be. And the, the response was the right one. They took accountability for their actions. We got a handwritten letter from the CEO. And he basically said, we can do better, we will do better, and we'll make changes. And mm -hmm. what's more important than that? And that film is going, that's on HBO right now, and that film is going around the country um, at universities, at hospital systems, at law centers, um, having a profound impact because people are seeing the importance of transparency, transparency and accountability in the medical profession. For sure. My mom's a, my mom's a, a she's part of the transplant team, and she's, you know, mm -hmm. she's definitely told us some things, and it's, you know, it's it's definitely a a hard, hard, hard thing. Like she's told me so many stories of things that have happened and you know, and right now she's like a manager and there's problems within the team and she's having some like leadership issues and I told her, I'm like, you know, my mom serves veterans, like my mom helps, you know, at at veterans and things like that. She does really great stuff. Um, but I told her, I'm like, you know, you guys have to remember I told her she should tell her team, like, you know, that they need to remember that they're serving. You know what I mean? They need, you guys need to come together mm -hmm. so that way you can best serve. Cause if you guys are, you know, knocking each other down or not in a good positive, you know, environment, these are people's lives at risk. You know what I mean? Like an actor, if I forget to like be on my best state of mind, I mean, all right, I'll mess up a play tomorrow. There'll be a new one, you know, or I can do another take, but you guys are messing with people's lives here. Um, that's amazing. I definitely want to, I want to watch that. Um, because I feel like documentaries are awesome because you can just learn so much and mm -hmm. really be aware of something that you weren't aware of. Okay, so bleed out. And then so um, what goes on from there? Um, well, we did a movie called Davi's Way, which is, okay. that was definitely a fun departure. That, that movie was sort of an exercise in narcissism. And okay. I've long been fascinated in, about narcissism. Uh, and it was like a really, uh, really fun film. It's a, a sort of a comedy of sorts. Um, mm we started following an actor named Robert Davi in his pursuit of his dream of being a, um, a singer. 
And he had mm. been a career actor, character actor, played a villain in about 130 films. Uh, everything from Goonies to Die Hard to License to Kill, where he was the Bond villain. And then in his later years, he decided to become a professional singer, going back to his first love when he sang opera. And we follow him on his journey um, to try and recreate Frank Sinatra's concert in Madison Square Garden in 1974 called The Main Event. Mm. And in the movie, our intent is to do this concert on Frank Sinatra's 100th birthday, what would have been his 100th birthday. Um, and Robert's goal is to get, you know, Jay-Z and Justin Timberlake and all these huge act, uh, all these huge performers to come and perform with him for the birthday celebration. Um, and the movie is what happens instead um, because our intent is to follow it and instead it goes this hard left. Um, and it's a, it's a real, and I think you would love the film because it's, yeah. it's a movie about acting and the pursuit of, of perfection and the pursuit of greatness in acting and, um, and, and passion and how you pursue your dreams uh, and how your dreams can fall short. Um, and it's both tragic and comedic. And um, I think, yeah, I think you'd really like it. We love that. Yeah. It's a, a lot of, for a lot of people, it's the favorite of the films that we've done. So what inspired that for you guys to kind of go in that route? Well, um, Ellen Lewis, who's Martin Scorsese's um, casting directors uh, and she's in our film casting by, she hands out casting by to people when she's casting them in Martin Scorsese's films. And um, my producing partner on that film is also an actor and mm -hmm. he was in Wolf of Wall Street. And he says, and Ellen said, before I cast you in Wolf of Wall Street, um, I, want, um, I want you to see this film and he saw casting by. And then literally a week later, I was randomly having a meeting with him. He's like, you made casting by, oh my God, I've got this movie I want to make, yeah. you guys to do it. And the next thing we knew, we were in business with him making this oh film. My gosh. So you never know how things happen. Absolutely. Uh, and that's sort of how this changes everything came about. Um, yeah, which I saw, I got to see at Miami Film Fest. Yeah. Um, so we were approached, we were having lunch actually with a publicist who had seen Casting By. And she said to Tom and I, she's like, well, you know, you guys made this film about women um, in the casting profession. Uh, you know, casting directors are 85% women. Have you ever thought about making a film about the larger issue of women in Hollywood? Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. And um, it's, you know, it's something we spent a lot of time thinking about and we thought, you know, that could be, we could develop this, we could go somewhere with it. And, um, I was listening to a podcast, um, and Gloria Steinem was on the podcast and she said something to the effect of that, um, gender equality is not a feminist issue. It's a human rights issue. Right. And me as the young kid who wanted to be president of the United States said, of course, I've got to make this film. How do I not make this film? How am I not part of the solution? Especially mm -hmm. when I see it so plainly in front of me. Uh, in Hollywood every day. Um, so Tom and I embarked on making this film and we got an investor to come on board very early and then we got Gina Davis to come on board. And Gina was incredible and lent, lent so much credibility to what we're working on. Gina Davis has an institute called the Gen Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media and she's the foremost authority now at this point on the data um, regarding gender inequality in Hollywood. Um, and so we partnered with them uh, and then we proceeded like in Casting by to get every celebrity you could imagine in the film. I know, like Meryl uh, Streep and Shonda Rhimes. And exactly. Yeah, we got everyone. And, you know, I had never name dropped as hard as I had in my life. <laughs> I mean, when you, got a, when you got a Meryl Streep on a film. I must have said Gina Davis's name 10,000 times. And then when Meryl came on board, I said Meryl, Meryl a thousand times. <laughs> Did I mention Meryl Streep was in my film? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, and I said it so much mainly to get everyone else involved. You know? Right. Uh, you know, I remember when... Um, when Frances McDormand won her Oscar, 
and she was talking about the inclusion rider. Yeah. She called out Meryl in the audience. She said, Meryl, if you do this, everyone's going to do this. Absolutely. And yeah. She really true. sets the tone and everybody wants to be like her. Yeah. I mean, there's no one more amazing than her. There's no one more respected than her. And, um, you know, it was, it was almost just watching her in the interview was just amazing in itself. Yeah. And the greatest actor of all time, just there in okay. front of the camera with, and how she lights mm -hmm. up a camera, even if she's just doing an interview of herself, it was incredible. Right. So what was that like? I mean, you, you, you got to interview her, right? Tom, Tom does, oh, Tom, interviewed uh, Tom does about 90% of the interviews, 95% of the interviews every now and then I'll step in and do an interview if Tom's not available, but it all hues to the story that Tom is trying to tell as a filmmaker. You know, my job as a producer is to collaborate with Tom on the making of the film. We talk about the big ideas and we talk about the story threads that we're trying to get in the characters and the way they're working in the film. But the story is all in Tom's head. Tom's background as an editor lends him, serves him really well as a director because he's compiling the movie and the story threads in his head as we go along. And my job is to sort of nudge and to continually nudge the film in directions, um, especially to make sure it hues to the, to the themes of the film, to the storylines that we wanted to do and being the outside voice. So every now and then I'll do an interview, but if I do an interview, it really is about servicing what Tom is trying to tell us as, as the storyteller. Right. So yeah, Tom did all those interviews. Um, mm -hmm. They're all amazing. Um, and, you know, Tom, and I would forget that Tom is probably the best interviewer there is. Uh, I saw him go toe-to-toe -to -toe with General Petraeus and Clint Eastwood and take him down. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So, okay, I, I obviously had the pleasure of seeing um, This Changes Everything. And it really, really, really opened up my eyes. And I was really impacted by it and cried. And, every you know, it was a standing ovation, which I know you guys have gotten many of them. Um, so I get, and I remember somebody asking you in the audience when you guys were having your talk back was like, well, if this film is all about women, why is the director in this a man? You know what I mean? They're like, why is it a man telling this story? But I think it just shows exactly what you said. It's not about a gender problem. It's just like a human problem. And I think it's beautiful that it could be told by a person, you know, by, by, by your gender, by a man saying, you know what, I see this and I stand with you and I, I do want to bring this to your attention. And um, I think that's a beautiful thing. And I know you guys worked with a woman that had done a lot of, she had, she had been doing this kind of work. She kind of shows up at the later end of the movie. Well, Maria Geis. Tell me a little bit about her. And because I found when she came to the film, it really got so interesting because mm -hmm. she had the data and, and then Gina had the, so I just found that part so interesting. So I guess talk to me a little bit about Maria. And, um, so making the film, you know, we realized that Gina answered one part of the equation. The important mm -hmm. Gina's focus on her data was about on-screen representation. When, what, what does it look like on screen for women? Um, how, what are their speaking roles like? How much screen time do they get? Do they get lead roles? Um, what type of acting parts do they get? It's about representation and what, what young girls and women and young boys see when they're looking at women on screen and how that manifests itself around the world. Are these women, in, are these young girls in, in positions of power? Are they the only woman versus 99 men on screen? Um, are they the girlfriend? Are they the prostitute? Are they the, you know, what are these um, non-assertive roles that they can often take um, as opposed to being um, the leaders of their own stories? You know, rather than the hero's journey, what is the heroine's journey? So really that's what we're looking about and how, and how young girls see themselves. If you're a young woman of color, if you're Latina, if you're black, if you're Indian, um, 
you know, how do you see yourself if you don't ever see yourself represented on screen? And what does that mean? How does, how do you develop your thought process? Right. How do you move through the world? As Meryl Streep says, if you don't see yourself on screen, um, 80% of all media in the world comes from Hollywood. So therefore these things matter because it affects everything globally. Right. So that's the, that's the side we look at with Gina. Um, and then we look at um, what happens behind the screen. How does, how, do, how does this happen? How does this disparity, these incorrible numbers of, rep, of representation on screen happen? How does it manifest itself? Well, it happens through systemic, 100 years of systemic employment disc, um, um, discrimination, 100 years of women not getting um, to tell their own stories behind the screen, not being screenwriters, not being directors, not being part of crews, not being executives. Um, and what are the factors behind not allowing that to happen? Um, and so Maria Geis is our conduit to tell that story. We go back from the, well, we start at the early age of Hollywood. Um, in the early age of Hollywood, women did enjoy um, huge um, participation in the movie business um, as writers, as directors. And there were many, in the early days of Hollywood, there were many great female directors and writers. Uh, but once sound came in, money in Wall Street came in and they moved women out. Um, and uh, they still haven't recovered to this day. Uh, Maria Geis's story is one of employment discrimination. She found herself not getting jobs. She found herself not getting work. And she thought at first, well, maybe I'm not good enough. And then she realized, no, there's actually a pattern here of discrimination at work. And she spent several years researching to see exactly what that pattern was, exactly what those forces were. And she approached the ACLU. The ACLU agreed to take up the case. And the ACLU wrote a letter, petitioned to the EEOC, the um, um, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, um, and they launched an investigation in Hollywood as a result. Um, and that, um, you know, our films are all about showing heroes and their form and people who do things um, against their own best, um, their, their own best interests. And she really did that. She realizing she could be blacklisted in Hollywood. She went ahead and did this anyways and launched this investigation. And through her, we tell the story of other brave women who did something similar. Women in the 70s and 80s who did it as well, called the original six. So we really examine how those forces need to change and who are the people changing those forces behind the screen that'll ultimately lead to better on screen representation. Right. Yeah. I mean, wow. <laughs> yeah. Crazy, crazy, amazing. Um, yeah. And I, and I found that really amazing when you, when that part of the, of the film starts coming out and the fact that I, I remember you guys talking about that in any other workplace, if there wasn't females, it would be a problem. But in the film industry, it was kind of just like not looked at. Well, Hollywood has a long history of self-regulation, of not okay. regulating itself. And originally, it was for a great reason, free speech. Right. Uh, and they didn't want to be controlled by the government, free speech. But unfortunately, the ramifications of that are also that the government doesn't interfere when it comes to employment discrimination for minorities or and for women. Right. And so now that you guys, since this film has come out, what do you feel like has really moved the needle? Like what have you been able to see the film success do for Hollywood? Sure. Well, you know, the film came out in theaters last month, um, okay. a great run uh, in theaters. And then now it's available digitally. Um, and then in December, it'll be available on stars. And then okay. it'll be available digitally. Um, but we've taken the film around the country. We've shown it at universities. We've shown it, um, state capitals. We've shown it all over Hollywood. We've shown it um, um, in different places. And it's been a profound impact um, because um, the film is a great primer, whether no matter what industry you're in, it's not just Hollywood that it affects. Right. Um, um, it, you know, women see the lack of their own representation in their own industries. And the, 
the way they've been marginalized, they see it. The, 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 the movie really shows the marginalization in a real profound way. Um, so the movement on the dial is, you know, my goal is to have on everyone's lips um, the idea of Title VII. So what I was saying earlier is that Hollywood doesn't interfere and enforce things in Hollywood. There are laws in the books to protect employment discrimination. Uh, the fact is that there's a lack of enforcement. Uh, and, and Washington has not been willing to enforce Title VII um, the way it should be, which guarantees um, employment uh, regardless of the uh, basis of sex. And um, so my goal is ultimately that Title VII, the idea of Title VII is on everyone's lips. They understand that their rights are, are mandated by law and yet it's not being enforced. So they can demand that Washington enforces it. Um, they can demand in the types of movies that they see. Um, and then ultimately, Hollywood needs to be shamed a little bit. Um, right. You know, no studio heads... Active studio heads want on camera for us. Past studio heads were on camera for us, but no active studio heads want on camera for us. And it says something um, that there was a lot at stake for them because this is an issue that they have to be very careful about because they realize their own failings here. Um, because the system needs to be broken apart in order for change to happen. So what has started to happen is that Hollywood is looking at themselves. We've shown this film all over Hollywood, lots of different um, screenings, and I think it is seeping into the consciousness that way. Um, and, and I think there'll be long, you know, we, we're not going to see the change tomorrow, but in five years from now, we might see the change and the film, it's not like, it's not because of the film, but the film is part of a, a larger discussion happening. And what the film does so well is it brings together all these disparate points into one cohesive narrative so that people can see not only the history, see what they what they themselves are doing and how they themselves are failing, but also the change that needs to happen. Um, because we show how easy it can be. We tell the story of John Langraff, the CEO of FX. Um, and right. FX went from the worst um, network when it came to um, gender representation and um, intersectionality to the best in literally nine months. And he did it all himself from a top-down solution, said, I can make this change, and he did it. And you show, you show how easy it can be if you just decide we're going to do it. It's not like, oh, well, let's set the goals for five years from now, let's make it happen. You can actually make the change right now if you want to. Right. Um, so there just has to be the will. So what would you say from an actor's perspective or young, you know, people now embarking into Hollywood, what, what would you advise them? Like what, you know, what would you tell them? Like, this is how you can make this change. This is how you can be a part of this change. Cause I feel like sometimes people do want to be a part of activism and be a part of these changes, but maybe they don't know what to do. Maybe they're so lost or maybe like, I don't want to be political. Like, I guess, what would you say to that? Well, it's, it's really difficult uh, for a young actor in Hollywood, especially a young uh, female actor, um, because, um, you know, your job is to be vulnerable. You know, you were talking earlier about, um, you know, whether people thought acting was a viable profession because it's selfish. I don't think of it as selfish at, at all. You're being vulnerable and open so you can find truth, and then you share that truth. And through that truth, people find so much. Um, I think it's such an important profession as a result. The ability to find truth in yourself and be able to express that is, I mean, it's one of the most amazing art forms. When you see it happen, it's incredible. And it's well, one of the reasons I love film. Um, but the flip side of that level of vulnerability is that you are vulnerable to people of prey. And Hollywood has taken advantage of that for a very long time. Um, and I think the, you know, we don't, really spent a lot of time on the Me Too movement and Time's Up movements in our film because the film started shooting two years before that. But at the end, we obviously give a nod to the change that's happening. And I think that there are protections now for young actors that there weren't a couple of years ago. And it's not legal protections because those legal protections are always there. It's about the idea that the community is not going to take it anymore. 
sexual harassment is believed. When a producer oversteps his bounds, the actor is believed now. It doesn't, it's not going to take a hundred people to say, you know, in Harvey Weinstein's example, right. I did something horrible. Actors are believed when it's happened and it's, people won't stand, stand for it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, um, right now is the best time because you have strength in numbers and you're believed and you're not going to be blacklisted for speaking up. You, if, if someone makes an advance or if someone, uh, if someone um, doesn't have, uh, but, but it's not just in harassment. I shouldn't say that. It's also that people are waking up and saying, well, how are women being represented on screen? Um, it is important for female storytellers. There are amazing female storytellers out there now finally getting an opportunity to, to say something. Um, and it's slow, um, but the numbers are changing. Um, and I think there's huge opportunities out there. So it's actually an exciting time, I think, to be a young actor in Hollywood or a young actor in general because there's a, a wealth of opportunity out there and there's people who have your back now. Uh, and hopefully that door stays open, um, that your generation doesn't have to go through a reactionary movement, but also doesn't have to go through what the generations before you uh, had to go through. Um, and you see that, um, I see that when I have young actors and older actors on, on, on stage together in talkbacks and in panel discussions, um, the young actors are so vocal, they won't stand for it. And the older actors knew that they had to stand up and take it if they wanted to work. And I, hopefully that is a permanent change. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's powerful. And, and it's interesting because how you talked about being a prey and, and the way that the media kind of represents it. And sometimes I, you know, as, as a young woman, you walk around and you're cattle called and, you're, and, you're, and there's, this, this, there's this behavior that happens with men that is almost borderline acceptable that we're just kind of like, you know, I will tell you, I can walk through New York City and probably get about 10 to 11 advances by a man, you know, either like telling me something disgusting, whistling at me. And that's not even in a work environment. That's just like me walking to work. You know what I mean? And it's like, and then I can tell somebody and they'd be like, well, what were you wearing? Were you being provocative? It's like, I was just being myself. And it's like, and it's so hard because then, you know, for a really long time, um, you know, I'm a very, I know I'm an attractive woman and, 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 even just growing up, it was always like, you know, act like a lady, don't, you know, you're probably doing something to provoke these guys. And, you know, um, I remember going to this workshop with the casting director where they were branding me and kind of trying to help me understand where I am in the industry. And, and uh, they're like, so what do you think you play, Elizabeth? I was like, well, I think I'm the quirky best friend. And I think I'm the one that you can like rely on. And I, you know, I'm the, you know, the one that motivates you. And they were like, no you're like the Jennifer Lopez. You're like the leading lady. You're like the beautiful woman. And the reason that you're saying is is because you're like dumbing down your beautifulness. Like you you don't want to be perceived as beautiful. You don't want to be perceived as this, you know, as as a leading lady, as something that's beautiful. You're dumbing down your sexiness. Mm -hmm. And it was like, how about you just like own that you're beautiful and like sexy and like, and I feel like it's because I hate, it's like my biggest pet peeve is that is that that and I get so angry because you know even I'll be like riding a bike and guys will say something and I'm so I get so mad that I like say something back or I'll be like I'll like snap at them or I'll like stop and I'll get in them fit in their face like I literally got harassed one time like a year ago I was walking my dog and some guy was like, hey, do you need help walking your dog? I was like, no, I got it. Thanks. You know, I'm like from Miami. I like, you know, I have like a little bit of an attitude and I don't, 
I'm not scared to kind of like put you in your place. And I'm like, um, no, I got it. Thanks. And then he got insulted. And I was like, and I was like, do you know how old I am? Cause he was obviously trying to, he's like, Oh, come on, mommy. Like I can help you. I was like, do you know how old I am trying to make it seem like I was like 17 or something. And then he starts like literally making me feel horrible. He's like, shut up, you little whore, you know, like, you're, you're so ugly, honey, you're so ugly, I was like, really, because five seconds, and he had been telling me, oh, mommy, you're so sexy, and then after I tell him that, he's like, oh, you're so ugly, you're so ugly, you're so dumb, and then I'm like, I'm 17, like, I start going off on these lies, I'm like, 17, you're disgusting, like, I hope you don't have a daughter, I hope you don't have a daughter, because this is so, and then I was so hurt, because it was just like, in a matter of seconds, like, why was that okay? Why was that whole situation okay for you just to do that to me? Like, and it sucks. It's like, you see, you know, like, it's just really sad that those are situations that happen in the world and like, that I have to walk and be scared or feel like maybe I'm not protecting myself or, you know, it's like, even yesterday, like I start like leaving the bus late at night. It's like, okay, like, you know, you gotta be aware. You have to be aware. Like, you can, you can get sex trafficked. Like there's so many things as a woman that you have to think about. That is if you're with a man, you don't have to think about that. And then people are like, Oh, why are you so dependent on a man? It's like, well, because you need them for security. You know what I mean? If I'm walking with my uncle, do you think anything's going to happen to me? No, no one's going to try. I mean, you hit them on the head. I mean, you know, these aren't sexual advances. These, these are advanced. These are about dominance. Yeah, it's about dominance, and um, you know, and it plays into the ideas of toxic masculinity, and you know, the importance of this idea of representation on screen. In some ways, it's it is for young boys, and it's important that we made this film as men because it's important for young boys to see that women need to be treated differently because they're trained in the wrong ways. If they're trained to see women a certain way, they're only going to act a certain way. All those people who made those advances that you're talking about were trained improperly. They were trained to commodify women, that making advances on women and doing that somehow helps identify themselves as men, that that, that is the sense of masculinity and what it represents. Um, right. And th- there needs to be a whole cultural retraining. Our young boys need to think of themselves differently and how they think about women differently and young girls differently. Yeah. It's, not, it's not on women to make a change there. It's on the men to make a change. So how does that happen? Well, it takes men taking, standing up and making a stand. It takes ideas of representation changing. Um, it takes the idea of, you know, the victim blame. Oh, what were you wearing? The idea that, you know, yeah. blaming the victim for it as opposed to blaming the people who are, you know, invading your space, crossing boundaries they shouldn't be crossing, um, and thinking that it's okay for them because they've gotten away with that behavior for so long because that behavior is condoned. And we're both from Miami, and Latino culture has a chauvinist culture. Um, and there's a lot that needs to change. Machismo. Yeah. And there's a lot that needs to change within that culture as well in order for that to happen. I mean, they are matriarchal societies with a huge amount of machismo. And it's, it's a fascinating um, dilemma in Miami itself. And I talked about this when we were releasing the film in Miami, that Miami has this own inner conflict that it has to grapple with, with its sense of Latino culture and being part of a modern cosmopolitan American society. And what is the role going to be there? Right. You know? And I think it even comes down to even the way men in our generation courts women nowadays, like because of the Twitter, I mean, because of the, the, what's the dating app? <laughs> um, the, the one where people, I don't use it. Tinder. Yes. Um, Tinder, you know, like thankfully, you know, I, I, my brother, he, he's finally dating a girl, but for so long, I felt like 
it was just this lustful behavior for so long and not just him, but our generation in general, where it's like, how about you court a woman? How about you go on a date? Like, how about you see her for what she is more than just this object that you're just trying to get something out of? And, and I, and, and I felt like for so long, again, with that machismo is like, I remember being relationships in the past where my boyfriends were great to me, but right when they were in front of their dad, for some reason, they had to flip a switch as if they were now in charge. And, you know, my ex-boyfriend would treat me like garbage in front of his dad because his dad had treated his mom for bad, had treated his mom bad for so long that I guess he thought, well, this is me like showing my dad that like, I'm the, the head of this relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and I also feel like how you said it is a man, you know, we have to train these younger men and, and even just shame these older men and let them know like, Hey, this is not okay. But even also the women like standing up and knowing their worth, because even in the dating world, like you look at them and it's like, you know, I'll tell my brother, I'm like, take her on it. He's like, but she doesn't want that. She doesn't want that. Like she just wants me to like, you know, sleep with her. And I'm like, well, that sucks too, because now we have young ladies that don't even respect themselves that think like, this is what I'm worth. You know, this is what you should do. Women feeling that they should have a voice and willing and, and knowing that they can be assertive and talk and, you know, actually supposed to have an opinion, you know, rather than, oh, this is what this girl wants or this woman wants, you know, really the idea that they should be speaking up in class, that they should be speaking up on dates, that they should have an opinion, that they should be strong. You know, um, our next two films, the two films we're working on right now, right. Um, specifically address that. You know, I am fascinated by the rise of young girls. And I saw it in This Changes Everything. And uh, uh, we're doing a film right now about gun violence in America. Um, mm. We are focused on um, the debate that's in Colorado. Um, and we spent a lot of time profiling young girls in this, um, in this scenario because they are the ones taking action. Girls from Columbine High School, teenage girls there, um, young college students are, are activists, and how they're standing up and doing it. If, if they have a seat at the table, um, things change. If women have a seat at the table, no matter where you are, things change. I was in Nor- Northern Ireland on another project about the peace treaty that happened in Northern Ireland in 1998, and things only changed because women had a seat at the table. My hero, George Mitchell, who I worked for 30 years earlier, was the one who made sure that women had a seat at the table. Right. Um, we're now doing a film about um, um, climate change, but it's not about the science of the debate of climate change. It is about those young teenage activists standing up and doing something. If we teach these teenage girls um, to be vocal and to be active and to assert themselves and to take on the world now, how they are going to be as adults will be so profoundly different. There's a unique opportunity here. And I feel like it's my job and everyone else's job to encourage it, to foster it, because we'll have a different world as a result, hopefully a better world as a result. And, it'll, and it will, the ramifications will be everywhere, whether it is in politics, whether it's in culture, whether it's financially, or whether it's in relationships. You know? Absolutely. And now, of course, you have a little girl. <laughs> No, I have a little girl, so so I feel like the, I've doubled down on my sense of responsibility and accountability. So um, what has that journey been like? I mean, was this three weeks ago? Yep, she was born three weeks ago, and I, I think it's very fitting that on the heels of this filmmaking uh, um, that I'm having a girl, or that I had a girl. And, um, you know, and then you have to decide, um, you know, what are the... You know, obviously three weeks in, it's too early, <laughs> but, but I think a lot about, well, what do, how do I want to make sure to raise her? Um, I posted this thing. I saw uh, it. it where I, with a tutu um, where it said, you know, she just, you know, she doesn't want to be a princess. She wants to be a CEO. Don't call her a princess. I won't let anyone call her a princess. Right. Um, because in some ways it's demeaning. In some ways it's putting her in a little ivory tower as opposed to letting her move through the world assertive and in charge. 
Um, and how do I make sure that she learns that every step of the way? How do I make sure that she raises her hand in class? How do I make sure that she finds self-worth and things that aren't about her beauty? How do I make sure that she finds all these things um, that, um, that she deserves uh, and that she isn't limited in any way? Like those, those are things I'm going to be thinking about constantly. You know? Absolutely. And that's beautiful. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. I loved the, the announcement that you made of her where you put, you know, again, that she isn't a princess and mm -hmm. that, um, that you're going to help her, you know, reach the ceiling. And I just, I thought it was a, I think I want to read it. <laughs> I was like, I want to read it. Um, I think I have it right here. So tell me her name is, I want to, I want to pronounce it correctly. So, Dahlia, Dahlia Anais Arboleda. Dalia Anais Arbordela mm -hmm. was born on August 22nd, 2019. After three years of making a film about gender equality, it's only fitting that our first child is a girl. As a parent, we promise to help her dream big, bigger than just being a princess. We promise to teach her to fight injustice and to use her voice. We will nurture her so that she can stand proudly on the shoulders of the brave amazing women before her who fought so hard for change. She will shatter through glass ceilings, unconscious bias, and nefarious, did I say that right? Nefarious yeah. power of apathy. Mm -hmm. She can and will be anything she wants to be. As our partner and friend, Gina Davis, proudly says it, if she can see it, she can be it. This changes everything. So beautiful. What a beautiful, beautiful testament of all of the work that you're doing. And I can only imagine like all of the activism and, and whatever it is that she wants to do. I know that she's going to do it just like you did so passionately and, and moving forward. And I'm so grateful that I went up to you and I was like, this guy's awesome. I need to introduce myself to him. And I'm so grateful that um, you said yes to being on this podcast. And well, thank um, you so much for having me. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I think you're doing amazing, incredible, incredible work and, I want to be a part of it. I want to watch it. I, I'm, I'm just so grateful. Thank you so much for um, being a part of this podcast. And for the people that did find this inspiring, I want to reach out to you and just learn more about your stuff. Where can they um, reach out to you and find you? Sure. Well, um, our website is creativechaosvmg.com. Our company is called Creative Chaos. And you can go there and reach out to us there. Um, or you can reach me on any of my social media things. Elon Arboleda uh, is basically the... The, um, the name for all my social media if you want to reach out uh, if you want to learn about any of our films we actually have a film that came out last night a Netflix original our first Spanish language documentary oh, yeah I saw that that came out last night go watch it if you can and go watch This Changes Everything uh, which is available now on all platforms amazing uh, yeah reach out feel free absolutely well thank you so much for for, for taking the time for this and uh, congrats on your baby thanks I appreciate it thank you so much and there you guys have it that is my episode with Elon, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I sure did. I enjoyed recording it. I enjoyed editing and listening to this podcast again. I hope that you learned something. I hope you go see his films. He is moving the needle, my friends. If you're an actor, reach out to him. Know who he is. Try to be a part of any projects that he's doing or just show some interest. I'm putting his social media outlets on the notes, so be sure to check that out. And uh, that's all for today, guys. We'll catch you next Tuesday at 5 a.m. Next episode will be dropping. Just remember to always keep on shining. Keep crushing your goals. You are worth it. You are a badass. You are amazing. I love you if no one's told you today. 
know that you are loved and that there's a purpose for your life. So find that purpose and keep pushing forward. Until next time.